The moment you've been waiting for is almost here. Football is around the corner, and you can start the season by winning $2 million in week one at DraftKings.com, America's favorite one-week fantasy football site. One-week fantasy means no season-long commitments. It's like a brand-new season every time you play. Just pick your players, pile up the points, and pick up your cash. That's it. Why wait till the end of the season to get paid when you can win huge prizes every week? You can get started playing right now. Prepare for the regular season with preseason contests running through August. You've already been scouting players for your season-long fantasy team? Put that knowledge to the test every week this football season at DraftKings.com, where you can turn your love of football into a lifetime of cash. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use the promo code RODEN, R-H-O-D-E-N, to play for a free shot at $2 million in the Week 1 Millionaire Maker. Enter RODEN for free entry now at DraftKings.com. DraftKings.com, that's DraftKings.com. Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms, legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Good evening, good afternoon, good morning, depending on wherever you are or what time of day you hear this. Um, this is Bill Roden. This is uh, Bill Roden on sports, or as I always say, Bill Roden and friends uh, on sports. Um, got my good friend Jamal Murphy here, uh, just fresh off of, uh, make sure when you hear he's fresh off his first Father's Day. I survived. He survived. You know, it yeah. was great. It was great. That's good. And it's hot out there. <laughs> you know, feel like Patrick Ewing in here. Oh, God, Patrick. Okay, uh, that's another that's another podcast. Uh, Seth Nyman, a wonderful producer, um, also an MVP dad, and uh, really, really, really pleased and honored uh, today. Uh, sort of in honor of this is the summertime, and this is a season of summer basketball and playground legends and high school legends and New York City basketball. Um, really pleased and honored. Uh, to have two people here who have um, written a great book about experiences uh, in, you know, uh, in New York City around uh, the playground, except it's larger than that. Uh, my guest is the great Carlton Green, Carlton Moto Green. Uh, welcome, Carlton. Yes, hello, folks. Uh, <laughs> hope you're listening and hope that you will uh, get the broadcast when it comes out and uh, we'll do the best we can trying to make you uh, listen and to, to buy the book because it's a very outstanding book. Yeah, the book is called the book is called Still Got Game a round ball, play, a round ball playbook for winning at life. Still Got Game a round ball playbook of winning at life and the book was written in conjunction with the assistance of Dr. Carrie Jackson uh, C-A-R-I, Dr. Carrie Jackson. Carrie uh, is the founding director of the Center of Spiritual Light, which is a nonprofit community service organization which provides uh, practical spiritual resources to individuals and organizations for re-envisioning and reinventing for excellence. Uh, Dr. Carrie Jackson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill and Jamal. Glad to be here with you. Glad to glad to have you. Glad to have you. Um, so, so just a little bit of uh, uh, about the, the background of uh, of Carlson Green. Um, 
many of you who are in New York and you know were up on the playground scene, the New York City basketball scene, 1971, 72, 73, 70, 71, 72, 73, know the name of Carlton Green. He played at George Washington High School uh, for a couple years back to back, his junior and senior year. He was an all city guard at uh, at George Washington High School, right? All, yes, yes. All city so played both positions, right? Yes. And shooting guard, point guard. Could you could you play all positions, like four, yeah, the three, I had the four? To, you had to play all positions. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, what? Let me ask you a question, Carlton. Uh, this this book, what 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 prompted you? Because you know, first of all, what do you think when when somebody describes you like me as a quote unquote playground legend? Because I always say that as a playground legend. What 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 do you feel about that when people describe you as a playground legend? Well, I really don't feel too much about it because. Um, I haven't. I didn't really be around the scene a lot. I just played after the game. I left, mm-hmm. so I didn't really soak. Let it soak in that I was a playground legend. I got it from when I'm in the streets. Guys coming up to me that I don't know, saying, "You know, man, you really played well, man. Back in the day, you're a legend, you know." And it just felt, you know, lethargic to me, you know, because mm-hmm. I never thought of myself as that. And uh, another thing is that um, the guys that were in charge of it. Uh, I was never around them to to hear them say anything about I, I played well or I was a legend or anything like that. I just played the game because I loved it. Hmm. You know what? What uh, was very interesting is um, uh, I'm a member of the Church of the Intercession Harlem, and so when I first met uh, Carlton, and we were going to do a photo shoot because I was writing a, a column on on Carlton for the uh, for the New York Times. And so he said, well, let's just have a photo shoot at the intercession. We we're supposed to have a game there. So, you know, we'll just come up there and and, and, uh, and uh, we'll take a, a, a shoot. But I had no idea of your deep roots and connections about intercession. What It really blew me away when you told me how, how in fact, it's here, like in, when you talked about you thanked, you thanked, uh, do, uh, you thanked um, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Um, John Black. Yeah. I said, wait a minute, where's the no John Black from? Right. And then early in the play, in the introduction, you talked about how your brother used to take you to intercession. Tell, tell us a little bit about that, because that was, that was really some great history. Well, well, my brother used to drag me along with him to intercession. He used to play for intercession. And I used to stay there watching them play, and then um, one afternoon, uh, Mr. Black said to me, just shoot the ball at halftime. Just keep shooting and shooting. So that's what I did. I kept shooting. And he, then when the shot was off a little bit, he would tell me how to correct it. And he said, don't worry about it. You'll see. You know, just keep shooting. Uh, but my brother, uh, he was also uh, a very good uh, uh, person in my life, you know, as, as, as far as dealing with me, taking me uh, to the to the court with him, to the intercession. Uh, he also uh, used to take me to the playgrounds with him and make me play older people mm. so I can get better, quicker, you know. Mm. And it helped out a lot. It really did. Carrie, uh, when did you, um, I mean, you're, clearly you're, you're not a coach. I mean, you're of a different kind. You're not a basketball player, you know. How did you meet Carlton, and how did you guys connect and decide that it was time to, to, to you know, to write, to, you know, to, to put his 
uh, his his uh, adventures into a book. His adventures. <laughs> well, Carlton is one of the doormen in the building where I live. Mm -hmm. And he approached me, because I guess he heard that I had written a couple of books. And so he approached me and said, hey, you know, I really want to tell my story. I, I used to be a professional basketball player, and I really want to tell my story. Would you help me tell my story? And so I really wasn't interested. Um, one, because I don't know basketball. Mm -hmm. And so I said, how am I going to write something when I don't really know the game myself? And, and I didn't know Carlton. So mm -hmm. I said, now is, what's the story? Right. <laughs> and um, who wants to know the story about someone who's a doorman? Mm -hmm. And so I was really thinking about those kinds of things. And I was very, very busy, and I didn't have time. But something kept pushing me, meet with this man. Mm. listen to his story and when we finally sat down in around April of 2014 the first time we sat down he blew me away uh, but what specifically what what as you're talking because we all have these stories when you're sitting down somebody wants you to write the story and you're like okay here we go you know and particularly when you say you know playground basketball legends say, okay all right what what happened but what when you had that first conversation uh what what was it that made you realize that this was a story. Some of the highlights of his life that he gave, such as being a 17-year-old kid and witnessing the execution on the street of, of two New York City police officers, and some of the stories about dealing with racism in college when he went to, to college because he was really wanted to study in school and he wanted to play ball, and sharing about some of the trauma that he experienced in his home life. And so it was a series of those kinds of things as I listened. And this was just in one two-hour conversation. Mm. And so I started saying, oh, wait a minute, brother, did all of that really happen to you? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and especially given when you meet Carlton and see how humble he is, how right. compassionate he is, because some of those things that he's experienced, a lot of people would have experienced less and would come out very bitter. And, and he's not like that. And when you watch him, it doesn't matter what age someone is, he really is helping people in, in so many, many ways. And then I got to hear the stories of how he has coached young people through the years. And so even when he stopped playing the game, he continued helping other people perfect their game. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we're doing with the book, is using his story to help perfect it. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll say why I was interested is I asked him, why do you want to tell your story? And he said, because I want to use my life to help people. And so that was much more interesting to me than I want to relive my days as a, as a legend on, on, the, on the court. Yeah. Um, what, um, what, what, two things we, we made mention. One of the key moments of, of your life in the book occurred uh, in May, it was May 73, right? May, so the, 71. May, May of 1971, uh, a few days after your birthday, right? Yeah. But you, your birthday is May, May 2nd. May 2nd. Yes. And uh, take us through what happened. Because when you read this, because you like, Carrie, you're reading this, and you're like, Yo, what is really happening? Take, take, um, take us through that, that, the, the night in question, which really had a major impact on your life. Well, uh, me and some friends were waiting to go get something to eat. Um, two, two of them went upstairs. Now, this is uptown. You're, you're yeah, talking about in Harlem. Yeah, in Harlem. Back of uh, Building 20 uh, in uh, 
colonial projects. Now it's called Rangel Houses, mm. named after uh, Rangel's brother, mm. Rangel. And uh, we were waiting for two friends to come go upstairs. They just got off of work to go get something to eat. So we happened to be sitting down, so two gentlemen came up to us and said, uh, you got a match? I said, no. And he said, um, uh, do, you, do you want something to drink? I said, no. I said, who are you? I can't see your face. Who are you? And uh, he, he said, listen, I'll shoot you. He said, and I looked and I saw like the, the gun butt and I told my friend, I said, listen, let's get out of here because he looked like he got a gun and I don't know what he'll do. So my friend said, oh, just sit down. You're paranoid. You don't know what you're talking about. So then uh, we sat down, and then two policemen came up, got out of their car. Pagentini and Waverly Jones came up. And uh, Pagentini, I could still see it in my mind. He was, he was very nice and, 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 and funny. He said to us, he said, are y'all the two, two guys that we were looking for? And we, and we laughed. He said, no. He said, no, I'm only kidding. He said, did you see two guys? I said, yeah, they went in the building. They looked like they got a gun on them. And he said, uh, okay, so they went in the building. And uh, they stayed for a couple of minutes, maybe 15, 10 minutes, 10 minutes. Then they came out. Uh, then the guys came out, ran, uh, walked out the building. And then uh, the cops, then they went back in. Then the cops came out. They went to the, to, to their car. I don't know what they did with the car. Must have radioed that they didn't see them or whatever. Then um, we sat down. We were still sitting down, waiting for our friends. And then uh, the cops went back in. Then they came down, and they sat near the maintenance uh, office on a car. And uh, Did the police did? No, the two assailants did mm -hmm. that. Uh, they came and sat uh, by, uh, they sat on the car. So then the cops came out after that, a little while after that. And as they were walking out, we were sitting almost by the entrance. As they was walking out, coming out, the guys had their hats pulled over their head and sunglasses on. They walked by the cops, turned around and started shooting. But before, while they were shooting, one of our friends came out and he said, look out, look out. And I, it sounded like cap guns to me. Pap, 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 pap. My mind was racing. I was, well, whatever it is, it's, it's, must be a firecracker or this or that because the way the cops were going down mm -hmm. they had their hands on their gun but it didn't look like they was uh, getting being shot and something like that never happened there before so my mind is just surfacing going through all kind of well is this real or this ain't or this or that and uh, so then my friends ran and I stayed there I said well they ain't got no more bullets I can save the cops mm -hmm. I can save them they, they should run they should run so they stood up over the uh, over the, the the bushes, looking up, and I kept saying to myself, standing behind the pole, the pole, the the pole, the lamp post was out. You couldn't see anything too much, just a little. So uh, I, I stood behind the lamp post, and I was like, "They're gonna run, they're gonna run." And so they shot the cops that they should run now. And I don't think they got any more bullets, like, you know. Uh, if I step out now, they'll shoot me. So I just better stay here and try to help the cops when they run. They didn't run. One of the one of the, the gunmen shot Pagentini, put his put put his knee on his chest and shot him in the head. Mm. 
I could still see where I was from. I could see a little bit of Pacini trying to avoid him from shooting him in the head, even though he was shot several times. Uh, then he ran out the project toward 155th Street and 8th Avenue, down 8th Avenue. Then the other one, after he ran, he took his gun out. He said, snap, snap, there was no more bullets. I was right that it wasn't had no more bullets. And he took Waverly's gun and took it out and put his gun in his waist and shot Waverly Jones in the head. Mm. So he ran toward me, and I st stood behind the pole. When he came out, I was going to hit him. I was getting ready to hit him. And I said, oh, no, don't shoot me in the head. I'm just a kid. Please. I yelled it out to try to startle him. And uh, he didn't shoot me, but I thought I was going to shoot. So I ran with my hands over the back of my head, zigzag. Mm. I think I was in some kind of movie or something, just <laughs> running zigzag. And then I fell over a lamppost, over a chain post. And I looked back, and he was walking with the gun very slowly. And I was like, wow. So I, I said, he's going to shoot me. So I was limping. So I got to the back of my building, and he was uh, he was going up toward the 155th Street Edgecombe, and I yelled out to him, "You bastard!" And he shot up in the air, and I said, "Wow, that means probably one one, one got away or whatever." I was trying to expose him mm -hmm. so that somebody else can see him, so we can get him. You know, somebody can help. You know, get get this get this uh, murderer. Mm -hmm. So then I got to my building and I, the door couldn't open. And I said, oh my God, I'm dead. I guess the other guy that ran probably going to come around and get me. So then I yelled up to the, to the window where my sister's, may she rest in peace, Sherry was. Uh, and I said, this is something happened. I don't know what happened. I think, I don't know, I was, I was ecstatic. I didn't know, because nothing like that never happened be, around me before or in that project before. And she came, and uh, Tony Manigo came downstairs, opened the door, and she was getting ready to go that way. I said, don't go that way. I think something happened. I think two top cops got shot. Don't go that way. Please, please. So then I went upstairs, and I told them, and they was like, oh, boy, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Because things like that never happened. So then um, a few minutes, I called down to the police, and I told them, I said, I think two cops got killed, got shot, not killed, got shot. Um, could you send somebody? She said, wait a minute. I think I hear something like that coming in. Oh, oh, you're right, you're right, you're right. And then a few minutes later, a bulletin came on the television. Two cops in the Colonial Project just got shot. Mm. And my sister and them said, oh, you know what he's talking about. I said, see, I told you I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> did you, um, did you, uh, clearly, I mean, you know, just hearing you recount the story, it's, it's still chilling to hear that. And that, you know what happened after I read it? I went back to the Times archives and, and, and in fact, two people delivered uh, a, a uh, the members of the, the thing is the, the Black Liberation Army mm -hmm. or something like that. Yes. They, they delivered a license plate to the New York Times and a cartridge, a spent cartridge. They delivered a license plate and a spent cartridge to the New York Times. What? And they said, they said, this is just the beginning. Right. What? And they, 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 it was like a little letter and a note. Yeah, because, you know, I'm like, wow, and it was, it became this, you know, so in other words, this would happen in your life, you're like seven, what, you 17, just turned, just turned 17, 17, you just saw this thing, and then, but then the, the other part of the story was that these people delivered this, the license plate number of, 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 of and, and a spent cartridge right. to the New York Times uh, with a note, with a letter mm -hmm. saying, warning them and all that kind of stuff, so you really wow. saw, but then, but, but they actually, 
They weren't because so after that they were questioning you, right? Because they were, yeah, they took they next morning about seven o'clock in the morning. They, the FBI came to my house. They knocked on the door. They said, oh, "My mother said, who is it? May she rest in peace." She said, "The FBI." I said, "What do you want? We just want to talk to him. We know he didn't do nothing. We want to take him down." So then she said, "You sure he's a good boy? He, he wouldn't do anything." She says, um, "Okay, you, know, you take him down, but you make sure he's all right." So I, I went with them, got in the car, went down there to 135th Street. And when I was getting ready to go into the precinct, they said, we have to do this, this is procedure. So they put the handcuffs on me mm. in front in front of me. And I went into the precinct and the cops were lined up sitting on the bench, plain, not plain clothes they were. And they jumped up and they ran at me and they grabbed my shirt, put me in a chair, wheeled me up to the light, and said, this is the cop killer, this is the cop killer, pulling on me, mm. and I caught an asthma attack. And the FBI guys was fighting with them, no, don't do that to them, we just came down here to question them, don't. It was a big chaos down there. So they said, go get some water, so I was wheezing. Then they said, run his fingerprints, see if he's been in trouble. No, he hasn't been in any trouble. And then they told me to stay there, sit there, and wait for somebody to come, or they'll come to, to, for, for, to escort me home. So then my uncle came about maybe an hour later, because my father was at work. And then uh, as we, as when my uncle got me, he said, "Look at him. You know he ain't no murderer. Why, why, why you got this young boy like that? That my nephew like that. You look at him. You know he ain't no murderer. He ain't kill no cops." So then when we were leaving, uh, two detectives came out and said, "Listen, we need him to stay with us for about two months, two and a half months or so." Mm. Uh, so. My father and my mother didn't know that. I was going through mug books, looking at lineups. They was coming to get me from school. I remember one day I was in school. It was so sad. I was so mad. I was playing in gym, basketball, of course. <laughs> and they blew the whistle, and the coach said, Carlton, come here. And I went over. He said, you got to go with them. And the, and the police on my car was sit was right on the campus, and I got in the car with them, and I used to go look at mug books and lineups and stuff like that. And they told us never to ask them any questions about what happened, mm. what it was over. So I kept that inside me all the time, and I didn't trust anybody with it. Mm. And my parents, and then my father, may he rest in peace, he told me not too long ago, before he died, he says, yeah, they came up here one time looking for you, 12 cops rushed the house, and I told him, you better get out of here. He's a minor. What's wrong with you? Why do you keep coming in? Why do you keep bothering them? And my brother used to tell me, told me, you know, when I, we, we wasn't really close like that to the family bond, you know, mm. as, as far as things like that is concerned. He said to me, um, yeah, they used to call here late at night saying, is Carlton there? Why isn't he home? It's 11 o'clock at night. And I had not known that all of this was going on. So, mm. uh, it, it wow. yeah, so it, it bothered me. So, and then when I used to go to school, I mean, after that happened, every day uh, the lights would be out from the 14th to about the sixth floor, seventh, sixth or fifth floor. The lights were out, and it just scared me to death to, to go to, to to go to school because the lights would be out. I didn't know if it was them or whoever, you know. I always had to look out after my back, and a few times there was people following me because I had guys. I said, look, man, I'm going on the bus. I said, tell me if this guy keeps following me. I'm going in the store. I go in the store. He said, the guy stopped. I said, really? He said, yeah, he's looking at you. I said, 
this is what we're going to do. When we get down the hill, we're going to chase him. So we ran at him, and the guy took off. Why would he run? How do you know we was running at him? He took off and he ran and kept running. He was too fast for us. He, he really took off, so we couldn't catch him. But there was little incidents one time, me and my friend Mikey, uh, he was another guy that we was going, we was going to go get something to eat up on the hill. He said when he came out of his uh, building, get ready to go, go with us to, to go get something to eat, the cop threw him against the mailbox and put the gun to his head and said, don't you move, you know. He said, oh, what, what? I'm, so I don't know if it was him, but they said it was a girl that saw the, said she saw the cops, but she didn't really see what I seen because I talked to her and she was one of the eyewitnesses for the murder. Mm -hmm. Anna. But she was in her apartment. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you were, you were, um, what, you know, one of the, the things that that, 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 that had such an impact, and Carrie, you can talk about, I mean, you were basically saying that almost changed the whole flow of your, because you had been all city in basketball, uh, those two uh, years, so May, school was over, right? Yeah, what, what grade were you in? June, I was in 11th grade. Going into your senior year. Yeah. Uh -huh. Right, so so the impact, I mean, I mean what, what impact, Carrie, when you talked to him about this, clearly this was like a traumatic experience. I mean, I guess you see two people getting murdered in front of you. You know, you don't know right. why. You just see it. Right. And and what? Well, and in addition to the execution that he witnessed, as Carlton was describing, people constantly surveilling him, and he didn't know whether it was the friends of the shooters or the police. Mm -hmm. And so who do you know, who, who do you trust? And I think that was a, a major, major impact, is, is not knowing who to trust. And, and then uh, also in, in the, his story, after that whole experience, he really wanted to get out of town to, for college and was not emotionally ready but wanted to get out of New York because yeah. these people watching, these people watching, and and how do you feel safe in New York? And uh, and especially, I think, and Carlton doesn't say this directly, but you know, this is me. I think some of what was happening with him with the police was because he was a young black boy, and had this happened in a different neighborhood or had if he had a different color. Um, I don't know that the kind of constant surveillance that, that he experienced would have happened for him. And, and one thing he didn't mention just now is that the family had good reason to believe that their phones were being tapped, too, mm -hmm. because he would go places. And one, one story that he told me, he was getting in a cab to go to the airport because he, um, he was going to... A, a recruitment with Atlanta Hawks, and the cab driver was saying, to "Tell him what." Yeah, what, he said, uh, "You you you going to Atlanta? You know they kill young boys there." I said, um, "Could you do me a favor? We get up a little further, pull over." He said, "We're on the highway." I said, "It's okay, pull over." And I got out of his cab because nobody knew this. Mm. Nobody knew. This. I just got the phone call. Mm. Uh, before we get to the Atlanta Hawks, there, there, there's a, no, I mean there, there's a, there's a lot of basketball. So so you go into your so this thing happens after your junior year. You're going into this and you'd been all city at George Washington. Uh, you you but your, your next year you you had a pretty good senior year, right? Basketball wise. Yes. Right. Yeah. You, you what made all city again? Yes. 
averaging, you average what? 38 points a game. 38 points a game. How good was the team, by the way? How good was George Washington? Uh, we could have been good, but we had a lift, a weightlifting coach, <laughs> a weightlifting uh, teacher for our coach. We could have been good, you know, but we always had good players, but a lot of them didn't try out for the team. A lot of guys went to George Washington. They can play. They were ballers. They can play, mm -hmm. but they didn't take the time out to, to uh, try out. It's like uh, some guys say, uh, "Well, man, you did well." I said, "No. The reason, the difference between me and you is I just kept going, and you stopped. There's no difference between us." Mm. So you were playing all this time. In other words, you were playing for George Washington, but during the summer, during the summer, were you were still playing when you were 17, 18 years old. Where were you playing around in New York? Uh, the, uh, uh, the CYA that was uh, Rango Houses. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I forgot what they call it. Uh, it's a, it's a unlimited basketball I played. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Who who are some of the other people? For people who are familiar with New York City basketball, who are some of the people your your contemporaries that you played with? Uh, Cheese Johnson, Butch Lee. Oh yeah, now Butch uh, Lee was another intercession guy, yeah, right? Yeah, he played for intercession a little bit. Yeah. Um, Cheese Johnson. Um, uh, let's see who else. Um, Bush Lee would go to Marquette to play. He went to Marquette. Sam, Sam Worthing, uh, Chief Johnson. Uh, let's see who else. Um, there's a number of guys. Yeah, yeah. There's so many. Yeah. So so what? So 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 there was a lot going on. I mean, uh, at, at, at George Washington, I think one of the things you talk about in the book, there was also not a lot of preparation, right? There, there weren't the guidance counselors. There wasn't. In other words, you were that good today. If you were that good today. You know, you you'd be making people so much money. They they would make sure yeah. that you were in the right courses. You were in the right this. You were in the right that. Right? I think you you really didn't get a lot of guidance about what to do. Well, what happened? They used to riot at our school, so that's why I wind up going to intercession. They had they had uh, little schools, intermediate schools that we had to go to, so they picked me to go to intercession, mm -hmm. and. Um, uh, some people went stayed at the main building, and they had another uh, and, and, uh, another school someplace else, 180 something street, mm -hmm. and they had to break the school up because they were rioting were very bad, you know, and uh, you got no help from from nobody in the school. Mm. Wow. No one, no one helps you. Wow. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back uh, and this and to, to begin this tale that you really can't really begin to grasp that really happened. So we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with uh, my guest Carlton Moto Green. You're going to tell us how you got that nickname Carlton Moto Green. Dr. Kerry Jackson will be right back. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to Bill Roden on Sports. We're back uh, with the legendary uh, Carlton Moto Green and Dr. Kerry Jackson. They've, he's written the book of his life, uh, well, not the book of his life, but the book recounting the details of his life called Steel Got Game, a round book playbook, a round ball playbook for winning at life. And you get this at Amazon. Go online, get this at Amazon.com. You could also go to your local bookstore and, and demand that they that they order it. Let me ask you, Moto, tell, how did you get the name Moto? Oh, it was uh, funny. It was uh, one night, 
a friend of mine, he just passed away, may he rest in peace, little John. I was uh, walking from his car, because I used to, I used to joke, get jokes to two with them, you know, I used to laugh with them uh, and get on them all the time. So they figured they got me good this time. I was walking and I had put my coat over my head. <laughs> and then when I came to the car, he said, oh, I know who you look like. You look like Quasimoto. <laughs> so. Uh, the hunchback of Notre the, Dame. Yeah, the hunchback, hunchback of Notre Dame. And then they used to call me Kalimoto at first. And then they changed it to Moto, short the Moto. And it just stuck with me, and here it is. <laughs> Still, you Moto. It was a funny thing is when he came to the gym for the photo shoot, one of the referees, you know, we, you know, we have these referees come to, to uh, and Julius, Al, uh, uh, Julius Edwards was one of the referees who's like a legend, he's a coach and all that. And so, and, and I forgot to tell him not to come because we didn't have games. Anyway, we were in the rec room, and here comes Julius comes downstairs. Julius must be like 60-something years old. He comes in, and he sees you. And I, first, I said, well, I know you guys got to meet and know each other. He looked, he said, Kalimoto! <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he just he said, oh, my God. He said, where, where have you been? I, said, I thought you were dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's, it's so funny. There are a lot of guys like, you know, Helicopter and all these playground legends. You know the names to Herman, the Helicopter, and this guy. And they're really out there. I mean, they're... Very, oh, what's it, Pee Wee uh, Kirkland? Pee Wee Kirkland. He makes sure you know his story. But but you were just so low key, and I'm like, but everybody from then and then last week, people come up, and without you saying anything, people would just come up and say, oh man, man, where you been? This guy was great, man. You were really the real deal, but you clearly were not a promoter. I mean, you weren't like a self promoter. You know, people were promoting for you, but but you weren't one of those guys. Who the way you know telling all like the white reporters you know white there's this old cottage industry of reporters who find all the little playground legends you know oh this you know but you would never if they knew you they knew you but you weren't all you were out there out there uh, bragging and 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 pounding the doors for people to tell your story right I uh, I just took it as it came that's all you know um, I I love playing the game and that's what I did and. Anything else, I can't be responsible for. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, what was the scene like uh, in terms of the street ball, like Rucker Park? Did they have announcers? Yeah, back they had, in the day. Yes, they had announcers. Yeah, they they're good announcers. They, uh, it was very crowded, maybe five to ten thousand people out there in the trees, on the roofs, and <laughs> in their windows. I mean, the scene was remarkable. And we had no problems, you know, nobody. Today they got to line up and get frisked. Um, we had no problems. Everybody, the people that came to see the games, they really loved to watch us play. You know, they were really sports fans. You know, they were there for us. And, and, and it, 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 there, I remember one time there was a, a Dauphine guy. He was uh, on the 20... In the 21st floor, I had to walk down because the elevator was messed up halfway, right? And I said, man, I'm playing today. You better not shoot that dope. He said to me, you're playing today? No, I'm not going to shoot that dope. I'm coming to, I'm coming to see you play. Right, right. So I used to wind, get all the guys from the neighborhood, make sure that they came to the game, you know, and uh, they enjoyed themselves, and I tried to put on a show for them. 
Yeah. What was your game? I mean, what was, I know, Alex, you had, a, you had a great mid-range game, but were you were you the dunker from the from the foul line? I mean, what was your game? What was the, uh, jump shots, finger roll, um, mm. had different moves, different style of moves and stuff like that. And uh, I had asked uh, Ted Jones. He was one of the coaches for one of the teams, uh, and he said, "Man, that stuff you used to do to us." It used to work. I don't know how you, <laughs> I don't know how you shot them shots, but they worked. He said you were something else. I never was around them, not to the later years to hear these stories, and I'm shocked to hear it because I mm. just love the game. You know, I just love to play the game. Mm. I used to go out because uh, my father used to bother me, so I used to go out in the morning, shoot around, and do different shots and mm. different. Say, well, this is a crowd pleaser shot. Mm -hmm. This is a this is a this is a, a normal range shot. This is this this to get the crowd going too as well. Had like three or four shots to get the crowd going. Like what? Like like, like uh, going through my legs three times and <laughs> spinning around and shooting it, uh, a, a backboard shot, doing a three sixty shoot. That that wow. would that would that would get the crowd going. But you gotta you gotta time it right. You gotta make sure the crowd is in it. <laughs> who who were with the, you? Who were the players that, at that time that you looked up to as a kid? Oh, when I looked at as a kid, I really looked at uh, Joe Hammond as a kid. Uh, the destroyer. Tiny Archibald, uh, Julius Irvin, Clyde Frazier. Because uh, I used to sit right on the sidelines because I lived right there, and we used to cheer for them. Yeah, yeah. And especially Joe Hammond, we used to. Uh, cheer for him because he was the underdog and he was good and I wound up playing with him later, oh, really? on, later on in life yeah I played with him how, how much older I don't know he? I think he might be around his almost 68 70 60, mm -hmm. something like that mm -hmm. we used to cheer for him yeah. you know you know the, the thing that we didn't get into I mean all this time and we talked about the police the the, the, the execution but even uh, your, your dad you know your dad was that was a whole nother drop because your, your dad was abusive he was abusive to your mom. And I think early on, by the time when you went to intercession for the first time at eight, at age eight, you would already become her protector, right? You, because he was already being very abusive to her. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yes. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't just that; it was uh, th there was chaos in the house as well. Yeah, it was a full court press. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I couldn't <laughs> outside, inside. It was just, it was a lot, you know. Right. What, uh, what, you know, the, the, the thing is, uh, and I think that. Um, Carrie, you could tell me, I think you may be, what I thought was very interesting about this book was about how you organized it. You used basketball terms, each chapter. In fact, I must tell you, I'm probably going to steal some of this. I said, oh, that's a great way. That's to, great. That's a great way to organize a book. But each, each, each chapter is a different, different basketball term. We got, uh, give me a screen, uh, pivoting, fast break, free throw, alley-oop rebound, full court press. And each of those is a basketball term. But how did that, I, I think, how did that, how did you, that was, I thought that was so clever. Yeah. To come, how did you guys come up with that? Well, uh, I mentioned it to her and she took it and ran with it. And uh, she made a lot of sense out of it, like uh, screening, setting a screen, the opposite team. The, the guy that's on my team would set a screen for the opposite team. And so he can, so that he can become free. Mm -hmm. So in my life, I didn't have that. No screeners, somebody that I could sit down and talk to. 
that would get me free, would free me up so I can get whatever off, whatever I had on my chest off my chest so that they, they can tell me what, which, what was right and what was wrong, what to do. So I didn't have that, so that's a screener. Yeah. What about the, uh, uh, what about the, um, the pivot? How did you? I mean, how did you? Did you? Did you, how, did you have more terms than this, and you just boil them down to these five? Well, as he was telling me his story, he Carlton was also teaching me something about basketball. Okay. And so I had to ask him. So, so what's that mean? And then some things I looked up online <laughs> trying to understand it. And so the idea, because I I knew we had to structure the book in some kind of way to. Mm. Um, get people to, to go through it. And, and so these terms just really provided that. And as he was talking with me about his father, as you were talking about the chaos in his home, and I kept hearing Carlton so much through his story, he kept looking to his dad to give him a screen. And so that's why that became the first um, chapter in the book, because much of his life he was looking for that. And, and so we talk about how Many of us keep looking to certain people to give us a screen, and they don't give it, and how it affects our ability to play the game. And so that happened for him in his personal life. So, you know, on the court, he wasn't looking to his dad. He was looking to the teammates, and they gave it. But off the court, he kept looking to his dad to give him that screen. And so we really wanted people, as this is a playbook for right. winning at life, wanted people to, to look at the kind of impact in somebody's life when you keep looking at somebody who keeps showing you they're not going to do it. And uh, you talked about, about the fast break is another term, that you had a lot of fast breaks, but you didn't convert a lot of fast yeah, breaks. Yeah, I, I couldn't, because I, I, I needed the screener. I mean, I needed somebody to, you know, to, to help me along the way to, to see if I was doing the right thing. Because when you're young, you, you really don't know, especially, you know, when you, uh, if you're good at a sport or whatever you do, a lot of people come at you. And you need somebody that you can talk to, or, or you need some guidance, where somebody can help you to make the right decision or the right choice. And I didn't have that, so it was I got fast breaks, but I had nobody there to to throw the ball to. Mm. Mm. Uh, one of the obvious questions we'll get to the next one is free throw. That seems to be speaking for itself. Free throw, yeah. and you're either really good, as we've seen in the NBA now. You're either a good free throw shooter or you're or you're or you're not. How does free throw uh, enter into? Uh, what's the analogy to your life? The free throws. How? What kind of free throw shooter were you in life? Oh no, I, I was a pretty good free throw shooter. Mr. Black made me shoot free throws a lot, so uh, I was I broke the free throw record in the Continental Basketball hmm. Association. I shot 44, but they put 43 consecutive <laughs> shots <laughs> in right. each. Part of the the, the t uh, cities we went into, I shot 44 straight, right. and I the record was 28. I didn't know it, so they called and told me, said you broke the free throw record, mm. and I said wow. And I, I, the free throw, how that, that how that comes in your life is, you get a free throw, it's free. You know, you you did something to become free, mm. so now you have to make the shots. But I had no, I had no connection to make the shots. So, uh, I mean, I made the free throw, but I had no other connection for me to talk to anybody to how to move forward. 
So you went to, so from George Washington, let's do the thing, you went from George Washington, because everybody's, there's okay now, where, how, how come we didn't, where did he get, did, did he get a scholarship <laughs> to, okay, what, what happened? Right. So what happened? So tell us about, you you know, he's all-city player at mm-hmm. George Washington. Uh, so tell us what happened after that, or, or what did or did not happen. Well, what happened was, uh, I went to Barbara Scotia in Jan, uh, January. Of after your senior year, yeah, mm-hmm. went to Barbara Scotia in North yeah, Carolina. North Carolina, mm-hmm. I didn't like Barbara Scotia. It was pretty weird, <laughs> and uh, I wound up leaving like uh, maybe two or three weeks or a month. Mm-hmm. I left there and I came back, and then I was still you got a job. Uh, yeah, I got. Yeah, I think I got a job. Then I worked in a law firm. Uh, for uh, Smith Corona Merchants, mm-hmm. a law firm, uh, and I, uh, you know, I used to work in the summer a lot with kids. Uh, I was a counselor for for some kids in the summer. Mm-hmm. Then I said, I know I have to get back out. I have to get out of here so I can try to uh, make it because I really like school, mm-hmm. but it would have to be the right school for me to go to. I mean, when I left to go there, I know I shouldn't have went there because my mind wasn't there. I had over hundred some scholarships. And I, you know, my brother tried to make me later on. Came, he was never around when I when I was going through the basketball. Never came to any of the games or anything. And I needed him because he knew a lot about basketball. Which school would be the right school for me to go to? And you know, somebody I can talk with that knows basketball. But he wasn't there, and uh, so I didn't know which school to uh, to go to. Because mm. before you go to these schools, you got to see if they really want you. You go there, you visit it, you talk to them and see what they're going to offer you and see if they're sincere or somewhat sincere before you uh, go to the school, you know. And Bill, earlier you talked about mm. um, having guidance counselors and whatnot, and, and Carlton didn't have that. So he's in his senior year um, because of the riots that were at um, George Washington, senior year he went to intercession, so where he started playing mm-hmm. basketball. And, and, and there he saw, there's a, a cemetery sitting right there. Right. And so he had just witnessed the killing of these police officers, so now every day he goes to school and he's looking at a cemetery. Mm-hmm. No guidance counselor. He didn't even know anything about taking an SAT. Mm-hmm. And so when he, toward the end of his senior year, goes and, and asks folks, hey, what do I need to do to get in college? And so many of the opportunities had passed by then because that, that guidance, that screen that you talked yeah. about uh, really wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And um, so there were a lot of missed opportunities because the, the screen wasn't there. And, and most folks, everybody needs a screen, but especially when you're a young person coming along. Oh, yeah, definitely, right. especially in high school, you know. That's your, you get ready to form your life right there, you know, so that's important. And I find that any parent now, if if you find out some of your kids are doing well and the ones that don't want to do well, if they don't follow suit, that's what they want to be, you know. They, this one is doing this, this one's going to school for this, and this one, I mean, you still try to, talk to them and bring them along, you know, get, try to broaden their horizons, but that's what they're going to be. That's what they want to be. If they come a certain age and they don't want to do anything. So the ones that's doing good, you stick with the ones that are doing good because that'll help your family bond mm-hmm. and help it grow. Mm-hmm. You know? 
And then you, you went uh, your second school, uh, you went to a junior college in Texas, right? Yeah, yeah. First I went to Hardin Simmons. Right. And then I stayed in and they said, you know what, why don't you go to a junior college and then we'll bring you back. I went to Cisco Junior College. And, and right I, outside of Dallas. Right? Yeah, oh God. <laughs> oh, that was something else. <laughs> mm. I mean, the town closed up about seven, eight o'clock and uh, people were very uh, prejudiced there toward me. And really, were you like the only black person on the team? No, we had a few. We had a few black people on the team, maybe about two or three, and the rest were white. Uh, I was uh, in the classroom one day, and uh, archery it was we had, and I told the professor, I said, I have to use the bathroom. He said, you better not go. I said, I really have to use the bathroom. Mm. I'm gonna go. So I waited till, I tried to wait to see if I can withhold it and mm. stay in the classroom, but I couldn't hold it no longer. So I went to the bathroom, came back, and he said, get out, get out of my class. I said, for what? I just went to the bathroom, I had to go. And he said, the class will not start unless Carlton leaves. Mm. So I wound up leaving, and then uh, I saw the coach, and I said to the coach, kick me out of class, um, could you please talk to him so I, so I can uh, play this year? Because my grades was up and everything everything was fine. And he says, uh, I'm sorry, you have to do the best you can. You gotta go talk to him yourself. So uh, on Sundays he used to play golf and I used to pick up his golf balls and give it to him and talk to him. He said, look, he wouldn't talk to me, he wouldn't say nothing to me. And I couldn't get back in this class, so I wound up leaving. Mm. Leaving Cisco. Yeah, Cisco, yeah. Right. And what was it like when you came back to New York? I mean, how do people perceive you when you came back? You know, you came back from Barbara Scotia and you're back, then you go out again to Cisco Junior College, then you come back. What was, what was the, because here you are, this big time, you know, well known player. What was sort of the reaction when you came back? Uh, is They looked at me like, oh, he gave up. You know, he's going to do something different work and um, get married and do the, the norm. And uh, I didn't have plans for that. I really wanted to go to school. So I tried it after a few more, I think about six months or a year. I went to one more school. I went to Rockland Community College. Mm. I had to drive to school. I bought the car, I put, the, put it in my brother's name because the insurance would be cheap. <laughs> so I used to go to school for three days a week Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I think it was, and drive, because they had no campus. And I t used to tell my brother, I said, don't drive the car because I needed to go to school. So he drove the car, and then one night, he said somebody stole it. And I said, oh, I said, why did you do that? You know school is so important. I was just getting ready to start to play. Why would you do that? And that's just the way he was, you know. Um, mm. It's an unfortunate thing, you know. So that was so what happened. You just had to after that, I gave up. So I said to myself, "Well, you know, if you're good, no matter where you go, um, people will look at you, give you a look, and see, and maybe give you a try." So I played in the Rucker. When I knew that I was almost like all right, was I played in the All Star Game, Philly versus New York, or everybody was there, Joe Hammond. Um, um, what's his name? Um, Ed Searchy, all the greats were there. And I got MVP of the game. 
And uh, I didn't know how to really take it, you know, because all these great guys were there, and I got MVP, and I'm looking around. Like, uh, Buster was the coach, may rest in peace. He was the coach of Millbank. He coached us, and I said, well, maybe I can make something of it. But, you know, I didn't have a screener again. Mm-hmm. The guy should have told me, no, 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 you should go to school. Like, what I, what I find is that the older guys, they've been through this before with other people, and they don't sit down and talk to you and say, listen, man, because school is the greatest institution of learning in the world. You get your degree, and plus you can play ball or whatever else you want to do and get a good job. I think somebody should came to me since they see me didn't have a screen and said, listen, man, you don't need this. You need to get back into school. I think it's, it's, it's very important that you go back to school because you'll probably uh, have a good life if you do that. Mm-hmm. But they don't tell you that, though. They just watch you go along, keep you playing, you know, keep you amongst the, the guys that's not going anywhere that don't want to do nothing for themselves. You know, you know, and and and, and hearing you talk about this, in fact, I was just at the Giants camp uh, the other day, talking to some of the Giants football players, and we were talking about—I forget the subject—but they were all saying there are probably guys. I said, "How did you get this point?" He said, "You know, there are probably guys. One guy is from Texas. There are guys in Texas who are much better than me. You know, but you know, I, you know, he had a screener." Yeah, and you didn't. Mm-hmm. Each each guy's a running back. So man, I'm like probably about the twentieth. But there was a guy back in Louisiana who was much better than me. But again, you know, and, and so when you when you when you hear these stories, and then like you know, again, we got the NBA draft. I'm always remarkable. It's, it's remarkable when you see the amount of people who are like playing, whether it's basketball, football, and and, and what this story does it reinforces how hard it is to make it. I mean, you there's so many. Things that have, when I say make it, I'm talking about make it legit, you know, like make it to the NBA or something like that. But it's like you said, you need you need the screen, you need the alley oop, you need to convert to fast break. I mean, there's so many things that have to happen for it to for it to work. And at at, at this, when you look back at each year, like '75, '76, and 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 young guys will will get the major college. You get what do you do? You think? Um, are you are you angry or well, well clearly you, you seem like you made peace with everything but how do you feel with each year that goes by and back then not, not now but you know when you were 27 26 25 23 around there how did you feel when you saw these young guys well you knew you were better than you know well no you just say well you know the thing is you have to have an agent too as well if you get an agent he helps you get a contract. It's a screener too. Yeah, that's right. a screener. Right. Yeah, and right. nobody tells you that. Nobody, no one tells you that. Mm-hmm. That's how you get into the mix easier. Mm-hmm. So n- not until I got a Asian. That's when I started getting things done a little bit. You know. So, uh, yeah. So you and you got a good that. co-author. Yes. Yes. <laughs> if it was for Carrie Jackson, I don't know what I would do. She she sat there patiently listened to me. <laughs> with all my stories, my tears and everything and mm-hmm. I'm very thankful just to have her. Really. Right. Uh, before we wrap it up, um, what is the what do you think is the most important of these terms, the seven terms? What do you think as you talk to kids cuz you talked to our kids last week. Right. What is the most important term do you think of the of these seven terms? Well, I don't I think it's in the book but it's not on there point guard. Mm. 
point guard is very important. They, uh, they're the leader of the team, they're the coach. They get your assists, they can shoot the ball. Uh, they can do so many things. A point guard is a very valuable asset to the team. You need a point guard. Yes, you need a point guard. Right. He runs the show. All right. Yes. All right. Hey, Willisman, this is uh, this this we could go on for another two hours because this is great. We're just at chapter three, uh, <laughs> but this has really been wonderful. I'm so happy that uh, Carlton Green graced us with his with his uh, pleasure with the book, and uh, Dr. Kerry Johnson. I'm glad that you came with Jackson. him. I, I'm sorry, I said Kerry Jackson. Wow, I didn't write that in the story. I got it right in the story. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dr. Kerry Jackson, uh, thank you so much. Uh, Carlton Moto Green, thank you very much. Oh, you the too, book, sir. the book is called Still Got Game, a round ball playbook for winning at life. Carlton Moto Green with Dr. Kerry Jackson. You can get it on Amazon.com or you go into your local bookstore, make them order it. And if you run any type of AAU program, if you had young kids there, Get this book because the way it's laid out, you really, you really, really, really uh, can teach a lot of lessons. And if you're in the New York area, you should also contact uh, Dr. Kerry uh, Johnson and have her. You know, I mean, however you get it, you need to come and have him mm-hmm. talk because he's, he's he's great with kids. The book is great. And also, we will be in Los Angeles the third week in July. Uh, promoting the book so any of your listeners who are out there will be out there as well all right all right hey thank thanks so much it's been really great thank you thank you you pleasure pleasure Jamal thank you thank you thank Thank you you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.